0: The History Channel Original Podcast
1: History This Week June 27th, 1905 I'm Sally Helm It is the last morning of Ippolit Juliarovsky's life He wakes up in a battleship on the Black Sea the Potemkin It's sunny hot hotter than June is supposed to be in this part of the world. Jilyarovsky probably notices the unusual weather as he steps out onto the deck. He's spent many days on the ocean as an ordinary sailor in the Russian Navy, and he's now a strict executive officer, a harsh enforcer of the rules, and, in the eyes of those he commands, the most despised officer on the ship. By afternoon, the air is still, the sun beating down on the Potemkin, and Jaliorovsky has heard rumors of a problem. He has spies among the sailors on the ship. He makes it his business to know what's going on and to put down any insubordination. He decides to put in a surprise appearance on the mess deck where the sailors are sitting down to a lunch of borscht, a classic Russian soup, sour, red, usually made of beets and beef and cabbage. Except, when he gets there, he finds that the soldiers are not eating their borscht at all. In fact, they are refusing to eat anything except bread. Because, they say, the meat in the borscht has gone bad. It was stinking outside on the spar deck earlier. They smelled it, and they won't have it. They're shouting, beating their bowls on the tables, telling the cooks to throw the disgusting borscht overboard. Gilyarovsky can see these men aren't just disgruntled. They're possessed by something like a revolutionary fervor. He tries to stamp it out then and there. Silence, he calls. Why don't you eat your borscht? The sailors answer with a roar of anger. We're not doing it. Eat the borscht yourself. Jilyarovsky hurries off to take refuge in the wood-paneled room where his fellow officers are eating their lunch, not the same borscht. On his way there, Jilyarovsky must glimpse the sparkling deep blue waters around him. Within hours, his body will be thrown overboard into that very sea. Today, mutiny. What led sailors on the battleship Potemkin to turn on their officers? And how did that uprising help take down the Tsar of Russia?
2: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In
1: 1905, the Russian Navy is organized like the rest of society in a strict hierarchy. In Russia as a whole, power and wealth are concentrated in the hands of the Tsar and his nobles. On a battleship, the captain rules by decree, supported by his 20
0: officers. One of the things that's really striking about the Navy, even more than the Army, is that just about every high-level officer, we're talking about the captains on the ship, and the top officers are members of the aristocracy.
1: Professor Mark Steinberg is a historian of Russian history and the author of a book about the Russian Revolution. He told us the captain of the battleship Potemkin was Yevgeny Golikov. And that, of course...
0: Golikov was an aristocrat. He was a a nobleman.
1: A 51-year-old nobleman with what one account describes as a cone-shaped beard and the short, thick neck of a bulldog. Captain Golikov's attitudes are typical of his time and of his position in the Russian military. He looks down on anyone below him in rank and in class, meaning every sailor on the Potemkin. Many of them come from peasant stock. Off the ship, they'd been forced to work the land as serfs.
0: They weren't owned as human beings. The land was owned, and they weren't allowed to leave it.
1: On the ship, things felt much the same the sailors would be conscripted, sometimes for years. Taken from their families, forced to toil away with little reward.
0: There is this sort of repetition of class inequality and class brutality on Navy ships.
1: After their mini-rebellion in the mess hall, the sailors on the Potemkin hear the beating of the drums. Their order to assemble on the ship's deck They now stand before Captain Golikov. They're hungry, and they know that at any moment they could be beaten or worse. But many of the sailors feel that they're approaching some kind of limit on the abuses they endure. Sleeping quarters more suited to cattle, bans on leaving the ship while in port, all while facing the threat of death in battle. And now they're supposed to eat a lunch of maggot-infested slop?
0: They believed that their human dignity is what was at stake here, that they had been humiliated, not just about the meat. The meat was the catalyst, but that long history of humiliation and degradation and insults to their humanity, they believed they were human beings and deserved to be treated as such.
1: Journalist Neil Bascom is the author of a book about the Potemkin. He brings us back to that doomed officer who entered the mess hall to find the beginnings of a revolt. That officer now stands on the deck of the battleship, alongside his captain.
3: The second in command of the battleship Potemkin uh, was this martinet named Jularovsky.
1: A martinet is a stickler for details, someone obsessed with maintaining discipline. And that is certainly Second Officer Gilyarovsky.
3: He would run up to sailors and start yelling in their face for absolutely no reason. would strike them. They could be flogged. They could be punished on absolute whim. And so they felt trapped, and they were ruled by these absolutely miserable officers.
1: Officers who tended to be the dregs of the Russian Navy, because many of the best had already been sent off to fight in a war. Japan and Russia were fighting the Russo-Japanese War in the Yellow Sea, half a world away from the Black Sea, where the Potemkin is.
3: And so you have these inexperienced officers, the worst of the lot, being charged at the Black Sea fleet.
1: Now it's noon. Most of the Potemkin's 763-man crew stand stiffly on deck beneath the burning sun, jammed against the rails from stem to stern. Captain Golikov reminds them that there is a remedy for those who forget discipline by refusing to eat their food. You will be hanged. He says there's rope enough on board for everyone. And then he orders the sailors to honor military discipline by choking down the borscht. Golikov tells them,
3: The doctor is here. He tells you to eat it. You're going to eat it and that just stirs up the sailors even more. They begin to hold the line say, no, we won't, we won't eat that. And Jalilovsky says, if you don't, there will be consequences.
1: Captain Golikov gives the crew one last chance to obey him. He says, whoever wants to eat the borscht, step forward. For emphasis, second officer Jalilovsky screams, hurry up. 12 men follow the order, but the rest stay put. One of the rebels cries out, eat it yourself, you dragon. This is the devil's ashes.
3: And they say, down with the officers. We will not eat this.
1: At this, Captain Golikov shouts, call out the guard. Two columns of 10 men storm onto the deck, each carrying a rifle fixed with a bayonet. The sailors start pushing and shoving, some stepping forward, others taking a fallback position near one of the ship's gun turrets. And now, second officer Jalurowski makes a fateful decision.
3: Jalurowski, who could have quieted things down at this point, who could have found some kind of middle ground, he went the other way. He decides, this is a challenge to my authority. This will not stand. And he calls for the tarpaulin.
1: The men know what this means. Someone is going to die.
3: If you're looking for that moment when the dynamite was lit, it was when Jilarovsky calls for the tarpaulin.
1: The sailors understand what is supposed to happen next.
3: That means that they are going to bring a sail and lay it down onto the deck. He is going to command any number of sailors to stand on top of that tarpaulin.
1: A firing squad will line up
3: And if they continue to refuse the order to eat their borscht, they will be shot.
1: Their bodies will fall onto the tarpaulin. No sense bloodying the deck. A group of 30 sailors is now pinned against the railing on the deck of the Potemkin. They've been slow to move or simply confused. Several sob, sir, don't shoot. We aren't mutineers. But second officer Gilyarovsky is determined to make an example of them. He feels like he can do it. After all, he's the highborn officer and they're just lowly sailors. But Gilyarovsky is about to find out that he doesn't hold all the cards. A group of sailors on the battleship Potemkin has for months been preparing for a moment just like this.
2: Give it a try
0: at mintmobile.com/slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: On the deck of the Potemkin, pandemonium. The captain has called out the guard. Second officer Juliarovsky has called for the tarpaulin. And two men on deck are thinking, this is our moment. For months, a pair of gifted leaders has been organizing fellow sailors to fight back. The first is Grigory Vakulnichuk. Neil Bascom writes that he has a distinguished black handlebar mustache and preternatural calm. He's known to frequent the gatherings of would-be Russian revolutionaries.
3: Vakulnichuk was a natural leader. People instantly looked up to him. And so he was very much the leader of the sailors' board, the Potemkin.
1: His partner in that is Alfonasi Matyshenko.
3: Matyshenko was a bit of a firebrand. I mean, he was a bit of a loose cannon. He had a temper. He sort of went with his gut instead of thinking things through.
1: Alfonasi Matyshenko had been born in a clay hut to a peasant family in a small Ukrainian village. At 15, he left home to work six days a week in a factory and started reading about the French Revolution.
3: Matushchenko was a voracious reader, and so he was very well schooled on the theory behind the revolution. At 17,
1: he began saying dangerous things to his fellow workers. Do you know that there are other countries that are not governed by a czar, he'd ask them, and that the people in those countries live better than we do? At 21, the Russian Navy informed Matashenko that he'd been conscripted, a typical fate for peasants like him and like Vukulnichuk.
3: They both found themselves on this track in life that they didn't want.
1: They see men with money evade military service by paying bribes, but they have no money, so the Navy owns the next seven years of their lives. But when they get conscripted into the military, Pokornychuk and Matyushenko don't leave their revolutionary politics behind. They start organizing secretly. Along with other revolutionaries spread out on other nearby battleships, they hatch a plan.
3: They are going to stage a fleet-wide mutiny across uh, the Black Sea.
1: A show of strength against all those power-crazed aristocratic officers. It was supposed to happen in about two weeks, but looking out across the deck of the Potemkin, Vukulnichuk and Matoshenko see that clearly their moment has come early. Matoshenko, the firebrand, gestures toward the sailors who are to be shot and cries out, brothers, what are they doing to our comrades? Then he points at the captain. Enough of Golikov drinking our
3: blood. This can't stand. We won't let this happen any longer. We need to take command of this ship.
1: And the mutiny truly begins. Matoshenko and Vakulnichuk dash below decks to grab rifles and ammunition that they've stashed behind a religious shrine. Several of their fellow
3: sailors follow. One of the key marching orders, of course, is to seize the armory, to seize rifles.
1: These sailors are revolutionaries now, part of a wave of discontent sweeping through the country in the form of labor strikes and protests in the major cities. The sailors are armed. They're back on deck and...
3: Directly confronting the officers.
1: Matyshenko is ordered to lower his rifle. He replies, I'll put down this rifle when I don't have to live like a corpse.
3: Jodorowsky says, fire on these soldiers. He fires his rifle and hits Vakulnichuk.
1: Grigory Vakulnichuk, the preternaturally calm leader with the black handlebar mustache, a man who understood the risks of mutiny and of revolution. Anticipating this moment, he once told a friend, if I'm to suffer, I know it's for the people. Blood streams from Vakulnichuk's chest, but he rushes towards Juliarovsky and grabs the muzzle of his rifle. Another shot rings out. Vukulnichuk stumbles. A petty officer has shot him in the back. The fiery Matyshenko rounds the corner. He sees his dead friend with the hated second officer, Jilyarovsky, standing over him. Jilyarovsky shoots at Matyshenko, but misses.
3: And then he is just overtaken, both by Matyshenko and other sailors, and quite quickly killed.
1: This is when the sailors toss Jilyarovsky overboard.
3: Gunfire is now erupting across this ship. This mob mentality that sort of takes over Matushanko and Vukulnichuk have planned on and have caused. But at a certain point, it becomes this mob of men who are deeply unhappy about their lives and deeply unhappy about their officers. And it becomes a, a bit of a bloodbath. A number of officers are, are thrown overboard, shot. Captain Golikov is hiding out in the ship trying to get away. And he's found and sort of dragged by his feet onto the deck. I mean, it is a brutal mutiny. I mean, there's no way around it.
1: Golikov meets the same fate as his second officer at the bottom of the sea. On board the ship, the revolutionaries seize control of the engine room. They take over the wireless telegraph to stop word of the uprising getting out to the military higher-ups. All of this had been planned out beforehand by the sailors' slain hero, Grigory Vukulnichuk. Now, says Mark Steinberg, the question is, what to do with his body?
0: Oddly, they don't want to bury him at sea. They want to bury him in the ground. But they also know there's a revolution going on in Odessa.
1: Odessa is the third largest city in the Russian Empire, and the workers there are on strike. The Potemkin heads to this nearby city, bearing the body of Grigory Vakulnachuk. It is a message. They want to inflame resentment against a rigid social order that keeps people in their place, as if the whole country were a naval ship run by ruthless officers.
0: Let's go and show the people what happens. They're making a political point. They're part of a revolution. This is not random. They were still hoping to get the entire Black Sea fleet to join them.
1: Remember, the rotten borscht has kicked things off early, But other revolutionaries are already seeding mutinies on the rest of the ships in the Black Sea fleet. Soon, the sailors of the Potemkin, led by Matoshenko, arrive in Odessa. They lay Vakulnichuk near the great symbol of the city, a grand stairway that faces the Black Sea like arms spread out in greeting. It's called the Richelieu Steps. In time, the name will change. Russians will call it the Potemkin steps. The sailors place a lit candle in Bakulnichuk's hands and leave a written message on his chest.
0: And it says, for a spoonful of soup. Borscht, they even tell you what type of soup it was. And part of that statement was, enough of the vampires who are ruling Russia. Because vampires was a sort of symbol they're using of, what are the ruling class? They're the ones who suck our blood. And they represent absolute evil. They're vampires, and we're going to fight for our freedom.
3: The setup of this funeral beer stirs the population of Odessa even further. And so you have thousands of people congregating down at the pier to see Vakul body, to see this massive battleship on the water, to realize that revolutionaries now control this battleship. A
1: thousand miles to the north, a telegram arrives in St. Petersburg. Tsar Nicholas II reads it and is horrified.
3: There's nothing that scares a dictator more than the open rebellion in their military. If you have mutiny in that, you are on the precipice of losing your power.
1: Tsar Nicholas II is a member of the Romanovs, the aristocratic family that has been ruling Russia since 1613. He just can't understand why these people are complaining about their lot.
0: The world that Nicholas inhabited in his head was a world of traditional monarchy in which, by definition, he was a good person, a moral person, because every monarch is anointed by God. God would not anoint somebody who was not good.
1: He believes the Russian people would be lost if they weren't bossed around by someone like well, like him. The
0: Tsar puts it this way. Russians love a strong hand. Russians don't like democracy and freedom. They want to be taken care of. And I'm the father. He was living in a world in which he thought the Russian people loved him. Which
1: is an odd thing to think. Six months earlier, protesters arrived at the gates of the Tsar's Winter Palace with a petition calling for reform.
0: What does Nicholas do? He says, this is not allowed send troops against them and shoot, which they did. And that led to a revolution in which a lot of people who marched said, we don't have a czar anymore.
1: When Nicholas learns that revolutionaries have seized the battleship Potemkin, his reaction is similar.
3: He calls his Naval minister to St. Petersburg to see him. He calls the head of the Black Sea Fleet and says, you have to go down there and you have to fix this. You need to put this down because this cannot stand.
1: a detachment of Cossack soldiers is sent into Odessa.
0: When you say the Cossacks are coming, that's far worse than any other form of military or police repression. The Cossacks are the most brutal part of the Russian army. That's how they're seen. They are the enforcers. They are the riot police. They're they are they're terrible. They would run into a crowd with horses with their sabers out.
1: That's what happens in Odessa. That and worse. Matoshenko and his men look on in despair from the deck of the Potemkin. They could try to drive the Cossacks back by training the ship's big guns on the city, but they hold back.
3: They're worried about killing civilians. And so the Potemkin ultimately leaves Odessa and begins sailing away.
1: Tsar Nicholas II orders his elite Black Sea squadron to hunt them down.
3: We're talking half a dozen other battleships, torpedo destroyers.
1: A few days later, at dawn, the Potemkin finds itself facing those ships lined up in battle formation.
3: The guns are ready on both sides. Both sides are ready to sink the other. We have the battleship Potemkin alone sailing straight at the Black Sea fleet.
1: It looks like one ship against a huge state-backed military. But Matashenko knows that scattered throughout those other ships are revolutionaries who might rise up and overthrow their officers. So he takes a gamble. He orders the Potemkin to advance.
3: And the Potemkin sails straight through these ships and nobody fires.
1: The battleship circles back and charges at the squadron a second time.
3: You have this extraordinary moment called the silent battle.
1: Silent because it isn't a battle at all. The sailors of the squadron hold their fire. They refuse to attack these revolutionaries. And this one act of rebellion pushes some of the sailors even further.
3: This causes several of the ships to mutiny. One, in particular the St. George, overthrows all their officers and joins the Potemkin, as well as another ship. And so you now have a fleet of mutinied ships on the Black Sea.
1: Grigory Vakulnichuk's vision of a fleet-wide rebellion is coming to pass. But it doesn't last. When the fleet returns to Odessa, sailors loyal to the Tsar reassert themselves.
3: Betrayed from the inside, St. George returns to the Black Sea fleet. The Potemkin is once again alone
1: the fleet-wide mutiny has collapsed. Matoshenko and his men now have just one last task, to escape with their lives. They sail south to the Romanian port of Costanza.
3: They are given safe harbor by the government there, and they leave the ship essentially as heroes. In a
1: final act of rebellion, the men fled the Potemkin, leaving it half sunk in the harbor. Tsar Nicholas II does not emerge from the tumult unscathed. For one thing, he's forced to rethink his war with Japan.
3: The mutiny was one of the reasons that he pushed for peace to end the Russo Japanese War. And secondly, it instigated a number of reforms to give the people of Russia more power.
1: Reforms known as the October Manifesto. They call for...
0: A real legislature and guaranteed civil rights, the right to assemble, free speech.
1: The October Manifesto also calls for the creation of an elected legislature called the Duma, which theoretically has the power to approve or reject the Tsar's laws. And, under pressure...
0: Nicholas said, okay, Nicholas agreed, and signed an October manifesto, regretted it for the rest of his life, said it was a big mistake, tried to take a lot of it back.
1: In April of 1906, the Duma convenes its first session and calls for the Tsar to treat the revolutionaries with leniency and to enact political and land reforms. Tsar Nicholas II refuses. In signing the manifesto, he had taken a real step towards a constitutional monarchy and guaranteed civil rights.
0: Things could have been different. He could have kept his promise.
1: But he doesn't. He dissolves the Duma and largely thwarts the reforms. And yet, something has been revealed about the Tsar and his grip on
3: power. This was just enough weakness, just enough fuel to show the people of Russia that if we rebel, if we say enough is enough, Nicholas II will fold.
1: Many have described the events on the Potemkin in the summer of 1905 as a kind of dress rehearsal for the revolution that eventually comes in 1917 to topple the Russian monarchy. Like the uprising on the Potemkin, it's planned and organized, informed by a larger sense of politics and history. And it is also people responding in immediate desperation to a system that considers them disposable. Serfs without dignity. We've had enough, they think. Better risk death than live another day like this. Thanks for listening to History This Week. Check out our brand new show, Sports History This Week. Very exciting. New spin-off. Hear from sports legends like Billie Jean King and discover the story behind some of the biggest sports moments in history. Sports History This Week. Check it out. For other moments throughout history that are worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please send us an email at our email address, at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We are reading and listening, and we would really love to hear from you, so please reach out. Special thanks to our guests, Neil Bascom, author of Red Mutiny, 11 Fateful Days on the Battleship Potemkin, and Russian Revolution historian Dr. Mark Steinberg of the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. His most recent book is Russian Utopia, A Century of Revolutionary Possibilities. This episode was produced by Morgan Givens, sound designed by Brian Flood, and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press and me, Sally Helm. Our intern is Francesca Mevs. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn, and our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.